Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Craig, it's a pleasure to have you on the show, man. Welcome back it's, to the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Thank you, Robbie. You know, we're going to talk about today. Like I told you, I was getting interested into the RFK assassination. Um, I figured you'd be a good person to help break down some of the RFK assassination. I know you, we've talked about JFK in the past. We've talked about Fred Hampton specifically. I'm sure we'll talk about some of that in this episode. But um, I listened to an episode actually before your first time on of a couple podcast episodes you did talking about the RFK one and talking about a bunch of things. So I was hoping you could break down the RFK assassination first, your interest in how you came across that. I'm guessing that was from the JFK and other political assassinations of the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, being interested in this period of history, uh, one of the things that obviously stands out were the incredible losses that we that we endured um, political assassinations. And when you first start to delve into it, it's what's coined the big three. You get into JFK, RFK, MLK. Those are the big three. And then others are, are kind of glossed over like Medgar Evers or Malcolm X or... Um, and then you start to realize, no, wait, the, there were scores of political assassinations in the 1960s. So let's 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 move on from the big three. But you but you you know you you cut your teeth on on the big three. So um, and I think RFK was drawn to me for a couple of reasons. One, because it is so it has much less of a spotlight. I mean, the paradox is is that. Robert Kennedy in life had to work so hard to get out from underneath his brother's shadow, which he helped to create. That, that was the other paradox. It's the same thing with his assassination. Um, that, that his assassination and the impact of it was so overshadowed by all the interest that was, was paid to his brother's assassination. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, there's a competition here, you know, I mean, the, guy, the, the guy said it in the video, the, um, and if you watch the interview that he's given his final speech before he gets shot, the guy said, get him. We're not doing another Oswald. We're not having another Oswald. And I was like, damn, I was like, it's, what the, why would you say that? Well, because he was being manhandled. Now, Sirhan Sirhan, the alleged assassin of Robert Kennedy um, and the attempted assassin of five other people in the pantry who were shot along with him, um, they pinned, I mean, he was only five, five, very thin, he was pinned up against the uh, against the steam table in the kitchen pantry. I mean, we'll get to those specifics. But Rosie Greer, if you remember Rosie Greer, ex ex football player, uh, Rayford Johnson, who was a medalist in uh, Olympic medalist in the decathlon. These are huge athletes, strong athletes that are twisting. You know, Sirhan Sirhan trying to get the gun from him, trying to subdue him, and it looked like they were going to snap him in half. And that's what, why they said what they said that let's not have another Oswald. They didn't want him killed before he could stand trial for what he had done. It was just, it was a, you know, a, a blutterance in, in, in the heat of the moment. Um, but yeah, there, there are reasons why Robert Kennedy's assassination is so overlooked um, compared to his brother's assassination. Not a lot of mystery, not a lot of intrigue, right? Um, there were scores and scores of witnesses. Uh, you, you had, somebody with a gun arrested on the spot uh who then reportedly confessed to it so this wasn't going to be that kind of intrigue that 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 the jfk assassination had who shot from what building because it was all in the you know wide open spaces and there was a lot of mystery to it um but but that's too bad because 
the like I said, the impact of his assassination to me personally was was far more reaching than than that of his brothers. And his assassination is no less important to um, to study and to point out the glaring um, oversights, unprofessionalism, destruction of evidence. Uh, when you really get into RFK's case, you see just how similar the two cases were as far as the investigations were concerned. Um, and I and I wanted to point out right off the bat that I find it odd that the government made so many concessions and deferred to the Kennedy family in so many ways in JFK's case, but the only time they don't defer to the Kennedy family is when they actually question the government's conclusion. So Kathleen Kennedy Townsend and Robert Kennedy Jr. have both come out publicly and said, we want our, our father's death reinvestigated. And how the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1976 overlooked uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination for reinvestigation, again, just, just, just floors me. But one of the reasons why a lot of people don't know about it, a lot of people haven't questioned it, is because unlike the Warren Commission, who published a 900-page report within a year of the assassination, then a couple months later, 26 volumes of testimony and exhibits to buttress that report, the LAPD did not, re did not release their official summary report of Robert Kennedy's assassination until 1986, and it was heavily redacted. Then two years later, in 1988, they opened up their investigative files. So you had 20 years between his assassination and the emergence of the very evidence that was so open and shut. So, so why, why that kind of delay? Um, that's the main question, but it's also one of the reasons why um, his assassination hasn't been dealt with nearly as much as, as JFK's assassination. Do you think it was also because it was the president being killed compared to maybe a senator or a potential president being killed as well, too? I, I would say I would say yes, if it wasn't the guy's brother. If yeah. it wasn't two brothers within five years of each other. Yeah. Um, I know there's many theories people have been saying that either he was going to reopen the JFK stuff, that's why he was killed, or if it was because he was also going after the military industrial complex, which I put a lot of weight in because we don't I don't think we've really had anybody since then that has really tackled the military industrial complex or openly spoken about the military industrial complex since Eisenhower, JFK, RFK. Every president now has been focused on other issues. Well, of course, there's the story of after uh, after John Kennedy was assassinated, the, the first question he asked Lyndon Johnson the first did question guys do Robert, Robert Kennedy asked was, did the CIA kill my brother? And I, I completely, I can completely see that. And the answer is yes, Robert. But uh, of course he knew that he would never, never be able to investigate, reinvestigate his brother's assassination unless he had the full weight and, and resources of the white house, which is one of the reasons why he ran. So the motive for, for him not getting to the white house. Absolutely. I think he would have been, you know, he he gained a reputation of being ruthless. Uh, imagine how he was after November twenty second, nineteen sixty three. He was, was he was pissed. 
how was he recepted by the public? It seemed like, do you think a lot of people were supporting him because he was the brother of JFK and a lot of people supported JFK? Because watching some of those interviews, I mean, I've seen plenty of interviews with people going around JFK and grabbing him and everything like that. But a lot of his conferences, it was a different vibe. It seemed like there was a bit more tension in the air. But then watching RFK, there were plenty of people going, Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. Because I was thinking, I'm like, yeah, this guy's brother was killed. And I think a lot of people have questions on that. And I think a lot of people, he probably had more support. I think he had just won something before he was shot and killed in the interview i was watching yeah so it's just i want to get into the specifics of what events obviously unfolded because i'm very i don't know anything about what exactly happened besides sirhan was arrested but i'm curious do you think a lot of people that were supporting jfk supported rfk and there was just a different atmospheric vibe compared to what was going on with jfk oh absolutely i think it's unmistakable that that the name recognition um it's been offset and and often said, and I agree, that the Kennedy family was our version of, of royalty, of, of our American royalty. People love talking about them, love seeing them, love, you know, it was, it was Camelot, uh, very romanticized. And, and of course, when the, John Kennedy was cut down at 46 with his beautiful wife and two young children, you know, that, that shook the world. So wanted to hold on to that as long as we can. And, and what better way than to then um, transport that onto Robert Kennedy's shoulders, who, who had already been um, dealing with a lot. But but it wasn't automatic. You got to remember that, Robbie. Uh, as attorney general under his brother, Robert Kennedy made a lot of enemies and, and sowed a lot of distrust, cer certainly in the Black community and the Latino community. It took him a long time and a lot of introspection, um, a lot of growth for him to go from um, voluntarily resigning as attorney general under Johnson, who took over for his brother, uh, to New York Senator. I mean, people even question, why is he running from New York? You, you weren't from New York. You were from Virginia and Massachusetts. You, who the, you know, how the hell can you represent New York uh, faithfully and um, effectively? So he did have initially a lot of criticism, even though he had, of course, the namesake of the Kennedys and, and all of the things that he did for his brother, John. Uh, including being his campaign manager and then reluctantly becoming attorney general. Um, but very quickly, Robert Kennedy was able to unite all of the oppressed uh, and marginalized people of the United States. And he, and he, please remember that he, uh, he announced his candidacy for the presidency of the United States for, for the election of 1968 in March of 1968. The election was going to be in November 1968. That's unheard of. That is most presidential nominees, you know, a year, year and a half, almost two years out, will announce their candidacy and start running, right? He did it very late in the game. I think he was, of course, waiting for Johnson and his decision whether or not he was going to run because he wouldn't have run against Johnson, right? At least he had that kind of par par party loyalty, even though he did not have that kind of loyalty personally for um, Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and with a very short period of time, yes, he created Bobby Mania. Um, young people, uh, indigenous people, Latino, Black, uh, elderly, they just adored him like Jack was never adored. Um, I, the, the stories of, of him having to go through many sets of cufflinks every single day 
because they would rip off his cufflinks because they wanted to touch him and they wanted to shake his hand. And his hands were raw and swollen from all the handshaking and all of that. So there was there was a, a quite a bit of excitement. Um, and then, of course, when Martin Luther King was killed in April of 1968, a lot of the hope and dreams of a lot of of people who had had that initially in in uh, Martin Luther King then transferred it to Bobby. So he had a lot of pressure on his shoulders, obviously, but he was carrying a, a great deal of, of the United States populace and was becoming um, a very, very, and not even politician. Because remember, he was in Indianapolis uh, when Martin Luther King was killed in Memphis, Tennessee, and he was on his way to a political rally in, in um, one of the urban centers of, of Indianapolis. And of course, all of his all of his um, uh, advisors, you know, even the cops told him, don't go down there. Um, as a matter of fact, when when he was approaching the area in which he was going to speak to the majority black audience, uh, his his police escort stopped and let him go alone. Uh, but anyway, despite all that, he was the one that told this crowd of people who hadn't yet heard the news, many of which many of whom had not heard the news yet, that their beloved uh, leader, Martin Luther King, spiritual and, and um, cultural leader, had been assassinated. And for a white politician to go into a predominantly black neighborhood, poor, uh, and, and tell them that um, was unheard of then and, and even more so today. But he made it a point not to make, it, it ceased being a political rally at that point. He was connecting with the people. He was telling them um, about Martin Luther King, about the country and how we have to heal and the divisions between us, um, that we're a better country than that, that we can unite, we're better than this. So he told people to put down their, their political signs, their placards, uh, that he didn't want them to applaud. It, so it, it ceased being a political rally uh, and it was, a, it was a humane plea um, to the very heart of the United States. Um, so yeah, in, in a very short period of time, he, he impressed a great deal of, of the populace and was well on his way to becoming the democratic nominee for president of the United States. So when you say that in California, in Los Angeles at the ambassador hotel on June 4th, 1968, that's when uh, the California primary was taking place. He won that primary, which means that he then was going to go on to Chicago to the Democratic National Convention in August 1968 and hopefully get his party's nomination. He would have been nominated by the by the Democratic Party. So in 1968, it would have been Robert Kennedy versus Richard Nixon. But of course, that didn't happen. Um, when, when his win was announced in California, he addressed they basically took over the ambassador hotel. Uh, it is a very famous hotel uh, that's unfortunately no longer standing. Um, and he was going to do his victory speech there. So he, he went into the very crowded ambassador ballroom that held hundreds and hundreds of people. And it was just jam packed and waiting for him to come down from his hotel room. Um, and he addressed them. And then a little after midnight, um, of, of June 5th, um, he concluded his speech by saying, and now it's on to Chicago and let's win there. And of course he would have. 
Um, he gets off the podium, goes behind the stage to an ante room that connects then to the kitchen area. And the kitchen area was was comprised of a very large kitchen, but also a kitchen pantry that that served as, you know, a, um, uh, yeah. An area where you know where uh, heating tables were and and uh, service trays were and a big ice machine and so it was you know uh, um, a working area for the kitchen. Uh, on the other side of that was what they called the colonial room, which was used as a makeshift press room. So he was on his way to the press room to give a press statement, and then he was going to go to a to a private party. Um, so as he's walking from the stage, the anteroom through two swinging doors into the kitchen pantry. That's when he was shaking hands with busboys and being led by a maitre d' by the name of Carl Euchre. Comes up to the edge of the steam tables and when he shakes the last busboy's hand, who is who is Juan Romero. Sirhan Sirhan comes from behind a, a stacker tray and gets in between Carl Euchre and the steam table. So he pulls out his, his gun, he fires off two shots. Carl Euchre lets go of Robert Kennedy, grabs Sirhan Sirhan's wrist that's holding the gun, slams it onto the steam table, and Sirhan Sirhan is continuing to fire, even though he's pinned against the table and his hand is, you know, like parallel to the ground, he's still firing away. Uh, Robert Kennedy falls back, people in the crowd were falling back, um, initially people thought that they were balloons being stepped on because this was celebratory. This was, you know, people were having a party, but lots of balloons around. Um, but once they realized what was happening, the balloons sounded like a 44, <laughs> well, but, <laughs> a but, 38 but, special. <laughs> but in a very enclosed area, you know, uh, the kitchen area was very small. Um, and so much was happening in it, not just obviously the, <laughs> There's one guy in the back, like, I was at Dealey Plaza. I've heard these sounds before. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, but there was also a makeshift uh, ABC. The ABC crew had a, a little corner of the kitchen pantry um, cordoned off because they were doing broadcasts from that. Um, you know, and people were following Kennedy in to the pantry. So there were, you know, scores and scores of people crammed into this little confined space. So Something like that happens, a lot of confusion, uh, people stepping on each other and, um, you know. It's kind of weird that if someone grabs him, his hand's pinned and he's still firing. Like that's a sign of manic or something like that. Like usually if someone, your first reaction would be to stop. And especially if you're you're aimed at killing somebody, right, someone right. grabs you, you turn the gun and try and hold it until you can fire at them to get them off you or yep. something like no, that. But Carl, just, Carl, yeah, yeah, Carl Yuko was not going to let that happen. So without a diagram, and, and we can certainly try. Um, I can let you share a screen if you'd like. How many people were injured um, with that? And then also, I'm very curious to what your thoughts are, if you think it was Sirhan um, that did it or not. I Because, so, like I said, my interest in it is not only from digging through the garage and finding my, my grandma's stuff, but Paul Shree passed away. And I realized that I probably, if I wait any longer, I won't have time to really interview people that might be important to the RFK assassination. So I want to. No, you're absolutely, to... you're absolutely right. Um, I like how you brought slides for me. Thank you so much. Oh yeah, I'm trying. 
Okay. Can you see the screen? Uh, you remember, you have to stop share and then click the screen with the panel picture you put up. Okay, that's weird because I. Okay, so this is the okay. room that we're talking about here. Yes, so you can see that. Yeah, and then if you roll, scroll up on your mouse, like you roll that little rolly thing that goes up and down usually. Yes, to make it bigger. Yep. Yeah, then it just it gets crappier. Okay, so this is this is the stacker tray that that Sirhan Sirhan was was um, on the left hand side. You can't see my <laughs> can't see my little hand, but um, I can. I can see your hand. Oh, you can. Okay, so this this is the ice. This is the ice maker uh, or ice machine stacker tray. Here are the um, steam tables. Um, and as you can see, lots of dishes. So where this gentleman is right here, these are two swinging doors. One was closed, one was open. People were filing in here. So the busboys were lined up here. Robert Kennedy was shaking his hand. So Sirhan Sirhan comes from around here, up against the steam table, fires two shots, and then pinned against. Um, so Sirhan Sirhan's uh, Ivor Johnson 22 caliber Colt uh, pistol only held eight shots. And according to the LAPD, once we finally got that crap together, um, the first shot uh, struck Robert Kennedy behind his uh, right ear. Um, the second shot um, went through Senator Kennedy's shoulder pad. It didn't hit him, but the guy behind him was a very good friend of his, Paul Schrade. Um, who was standing behind him, and Schrade was hit in the forehead. It was a superficial wound, luckily, but photographs of him laying on the floor, there was just profuse bleeding. I don't know if it's because it was the scalp area or he was just a bleeder, but a lot of people thought he was dead. Uh, the third shot um, hit RFK. Well, this, the, the next two shots hit RFK in the back where the shoulder scapula is, or the, yeah, the back of the scapula, scapula is. Um, one of them lodged in his uh, six cerv cervical vertebrae. The other one uh, exited his chest and went into the ceiling tiles, as you can see right above. These are, you know, just regular ceiling tiles. Um, the fifth uh, bullet hit um, a witness by the name of Ira Goldstein in, in the buttocks or the hip, somewhere in, the, in that area. Uh, the sixth shot hit uh, Irwin Stroll in the leg. Um, the seventh shot hit uh, William Wiesel in the abdomen. And the eighth and final shot, according to the LAPD, hit um, Lisa, um, Elizabeth Evans in, in the forehead, just like, just like um, Paul Schrade. Was she killed? She was not. It was superficial, again. Okay. And, and we'll, we'll, I'll be able to tell you why in a moment. So according to... Can you see that? No, because you got to close it down and then share the. Ah, uh, okay. Share screen. No, I'll I'll, I'll get this. I'll I'll, I'll get it. <laughs> I got patience. There you go. You can see this. So as he's being tackled, these shots are firing off like that and hitting people. Yep. Okay. Yep. So you can see this this um yeah diagram. This is supposedly the diagram that corresponds with what I just read, but of course the numbering of the diagram one two three. Four, five, six, seven, eight. You can see where the origin starts with all of them. One in, see one right here, killed Kennedy. 
then charade in the forehead, then three in Kennedy's shoulder out and into the ceiling, four into his shoulder and then into his neck. What's with the one that hits the ceiling and bounces, hits that person in the forehead? Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, so, so this is what it looks like. But the, but the points of origin are not only up, down, back, and back even further. So this is this is the uh, I think is that the lateral view I don't know and this is the above view, yeah the aerial view. Anyway, um, much like with the J John F. Kennedy assassination, if there's the existence of any more than eight bullets, because that's all that that Sirhan Sirhan's gun held, then there's a conspiracy. So the similarities between the JFK and the RFK assassination. Um, well, the destruction of evidence, the f false and misleading witness statements, uh, and the abuse of those witnesses by uh, those that were questioning them, um, the failure to conduct a thorough and complete investigation. Um, but it's for me, it's the destruction of evidence uh, that, that, that that is really going to open eyes. <clears throat> but you mentioned the Evans bullet. Um, Seems like another magic bullet. It is. This is the RFK magic bullet. Because apparently, not only did it go through the ceiling tile, hit the ceiling above, went back through the ceiling tile, but struck Elizabeth Evans in the forehead. According to this diagram, she's standing upright. But when she was shot, and this was, um, this was confirmed by, of course, the hospital report, um, and the LAPD uh, investigator who interviewed, you know, saw her wound and interviewed her, she had lost her shoe and had been bending down. So even though this diagram shows the bullet coming down, it was in fact struck her head going up. So it must have gone through the ceiling and then hit the floor, just like with the Irwin Stroll bullet, and then hit her. But of course, the bullet wasn't damaged uh, to that extent that you would hope that, that you would think going through the ceiling tiles, hitting a ceiling and then hitting the floor and then lodging into her forehead. So you, of course, ask the question, well, were, were there um, was there evidence of more than eight shots? Well, absolutely. Paul Schrade is the one that said that there was a second shooter. Well, Paul, Paul Schrade was one of several, but I'm not going to. I'm, I'm, I can't say that he wasn't a very good witness to that because he was because he already out. been shot. Yeah. Yes, and he was going in and out of shock, so he wasn't exactly the most aware person. But there are several other witnesses who, in fact, um, heard more shots and saw another gun. But we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Um, Pace yeah. yourself like a marathon sprint. I will have to do that. Um, so, some of the uh, some of the um, evidence that has been that has gone missing. Well, the most egregious one that reminds us of um, Dr. James Humes, who was in charge of President Kennedy's autopsy and who burned his original autopsy notes and draft in his fireplace at home. Because he didn't want uh, the objects of blood to be mere speculation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, the LAPD inexplicably in uh, August of 1969 
incinerated 2,400 photographs that they, claimed, that they claimed were duplicates, which, of course, there's no record in their file of having that many duplicates. It was in a hospital incinerator. Um, we have, just like the JFK assassination, we have photographers who were in the pantry. Um, as a matter of fact, if I go back to the, to the photo we just had, that one. Sorry, nope. Your screen, that one. Okay, can you see that? Yep. Okay, so there's a there's a table back here that Scott Enyard came in uh, before the shooting started, hopped up on the table and was taking photographs of Robert Kennedy shaking hands with the bus boys. Those, of course, were missing. Um, well, it was confiscated by the, the, the LAPD, and they said that they would process the photographs and return them to him. All he got were contact sheets of 18 of the 36 exposures that he took, of course, none of them being during the assassination. The not prints, but the contact sheets were only of the pictures that he took before and after the assassination. So, but Scott Enyard wasn't the only one that that happened to. A lot of, uh, of the photographs of people in the pantry were taken and confiscated by the LAPD and ostensibly destroyed in August, 1969. Half of the photographs taken by the crime scene photographer, Charles Collier um, are missing. And 90% of the recordings of the interviews that the LAPD conducted are missing. So all of these interviews that were on tape upon which they based their typewritten summaries and then of course the report itself are missing. So we, so there's no way for us to. Um, is that an infiltration from someone up on like in the military industrial complex aspect or is that just LAPD's receptiveness to Bobby Kennedy? That's LAPD. Okay. Um, the FBI, unlike the, the um, Warren Commission who relied on the FBI for all of its information, the LAPD did its own work, of course, did it horribly, but did its own work. The FBI did a subsequent, um, sometimes um, concurrent investigation into Robert Kennedy's assassination. They called it Kensalt, um, but, but they did not issue a final report. They simply just did investigative things and whether or not um, the prosecutor or the LAPD used any of that information in the prosecution of, of Sirhan Sirhan or the final report of the LAPD, um, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to gauge. Um, so, so the fact that, that that kind of destruction of the evidence, you will also see in this picture uh, the missing tiles right here. There are missing ceiling tiles. Well, if you have the LAPD saying that some of the bullets struck those tiles, tiles had to then of course be removed and of course, the reports of bullet holes in the door jam of the swinging doors into the uh, into the pantry. We have photographs of bullet holes that, from which bullets had been extracted, um, with officers circling it and putting their badge number on it. Thomas Naguchi, the um, coroner for Los Angeles County, uh, he is photographed examining the holes as well. Um, and one of the things about the RFK case that is 
startlingly and irrevocably different from the JFK case is that Robert Kennedy had the most complete medical legal autopsies you could possibly have. Um, Thomas Noguchi was an absolute um, professional um, and wrote, I think it was a 38 page. I think it, it, it ended up 38 pages with all of the uh, additional um, reports that he had, obviously toxicology and clothing uh, examination and things like that. But he also took scrapings underneath uh, Robert Kennedy's fingernails and tested that. That's how complete he was. Um, and the kind of professional that he was is that for most of the examination of the body, the external and internal examination of, of Robert Kennedy, he had to put a towel over his head because he did not want his emotions to influence what he was doing or the extent of what he was doing. Um, he consulted with other people uh, before, during, and after the autopsy. Um, the report was filed, copies of the report were filed with the district attorney, with uh, the LAPD, and in the LA coroner's office immediately upon completion. So there, was, there were, there were um, copies of the autopsy report where they needed to go at the time they needed to be there. Um, and it was through Noguchi's um, autopsy of Robert Kennedy that he established that all three of the shots that struck Robert Kennedy's body were fired from point blank range, from one to two inches. Not feet, but inches. This does not, of course, jibe with the positioning of Sirhan Sirhan uh, and the witnesses' statements that say how far away the gun was from Robert Kennedy's body. Also, all of the wounds were at in a steep, um, a steep angle. Um, I'm going to try to find the photograph. When you say steep angle, like something that shot through a ceiling. Um, no, actually, it, it it the the trajectory through his body looked more like uh, somebody was on the floor firing up at him. Um, there's a really good one. Yeah, this one. Sirhan was in. The people said that there's footage of him in front, or is it he wasn't behind? Was he? And they're assuming that he was behind, or saying that he was behind. He was in front. Okay, you can see that. Yes. Right here is Dwayne Wolfer, who is the LAPD criminologist. Right here is Dr. Thomas Noguchi. This gentleman right here, obviously an LAPD officer, he is wearing or, or half wearing the suit coat that Robert Kennedy was wearing when he was shot and, stand, and standing in the place where Robert Kennedy was. So here's the ice maker right here. Here are the dowels that are going through and showing you the upward angle through uh, Robert Kennedy's body. So if Sirhan Sirhan is firing, obviously, uh, parallel to the ground, waist high, how on earth could these bullets go through uh, Robert Kennedy at such a steep upward angle? So where are they, where are they assuming, like, what would you assume that that would, that would be, someone shooting from has to be a low angle but someone that's like laying down shooting upwards i'm just saying that's what that's what it looks like of course nobody was on the ground firing up 
Uh, and of course, the this throughout the years has been argued about a second gun. Who could it have been? There were, in fact, two people in the um, pantry at the time, uh, Jack Merritt and Thane Eugene Caesar, both Rent-A-Thug cops who were hired. I can't remember if it was through the hotel or or, or um, urged to by the LAPD because Robert Kennedy, much like his brother, um, refused to be surrounded by police. Um, I don't know if it, again if it comes from vanity or if it just simply comes from you know I don't I don't want to deter people from coming around or celebrating or having a good time I you know obviously we can't ask Robert that um, but anyway so we did have two armed officers inside the pantry at the time the most likely culprit is Thane Eugene Caesar and I'll and I'll have to bring these up did the bullets that the was found in Robert Kennedy's body match the gun that Sirhan had it did not. Although Dwayne Wolfer, of course, wrote a report that said that it did, but it did not. Was sub subsequent um, studies of Wolfer's work and the test bullets. Was it surprising to you that there was such a thorough autopsy? Like, you don't think that guy was involved in some of the cover-up aspects to it? Of, of what? Uh, Dwayne Wolfer? Uh, no, the guy who did the autopsy. No, uh, uh, Thomas Noguchi. No, he was he, uh, impeccable. Uh, um, Just make it sure, because we know how JFK's autopsy went. No, no, he, no. He, as a matter of fact, he was fired because of what he what he had done in the RFK case, and had to sue to get his job back. Um, he was he was accused of of um, having parties in the 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 coroner's office of uh embezzling uh, and taking bribes uh, just a slew of 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 false uh accusations against him simply to malign his character and it didn't work but like i said he had to sue to get his his job back um so he took he took a a, a great deal of of um uh, black well if flack i mean yeah, his his life was chaos after that. So you know, and everything he does then was 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 suspect, and and he had to fight for the integrity of the office again. So similar, similar to a character assassination. That absolutely, it was it was mentioned. without a doubt a character assassination. Wait, man, I'm with you. All right, so this is Thane Eugene Caesar right here, and uh, talking to LAPD. You'll notice that Thane Eugene Caesar no longer has his clip-on tie. Because it is, it was, it's, it was laying next to Robert Kennedy. There's a famous photograph. I don't know if I have a really good one. Well, it's the ones uh, the newspapers cropped out. They cropped exactly. out the clip on tie. Exactly. Uh, but it's right after Robert Kennedy was shot. He sprawled on the floor. Um, Juan Romero, the last busboy to shake his hand, is crouching by his side. Um, That's the one in the famous photograph of the busboy's yes. face. Yeah. Yes. Um, and right next to Robert Kennedy is a clip-on tie, Thane Eugene Caesar's tie. Are they? I, I can't. I can't. I can't show you this on the screen, but him being behind Robert Kennedy and to his left, against the ice machines. So in between Robert Kennedy, the bus boys, and the ice machine, there's Thane Eugene Caesar. Suddenly appears. He didn't. Um, he didn't escort. He wasn't on the stage and escorting Robert Kennedy back through the curtains into the ante room and then into the kitchen pantry. He just appeared. 
it's unclear where he joined the party that was going through the pantry. But he's to his right, he's behind. And if he's standing right behind Robert Kennedy, all he had to do was point his gun up. Shoot him in the back. Right. The back which, of the head. Which would make sense why he hit the ear if you're not aiming correctly in front of your eye vision. Just well, right. I, but 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 he, but if he goes up to his torso and he fires two shots through his chest, and Robert Kennedy is is reacting to the shots that are being shot by Sirhan Sirhan, so he's falling back anyway. By the time he crumples, his head now is yeah. where your gun is, and you pop off another shot. And then he's on the floor. I would think he'd grab the tie on the way down. He grabbed the Robert Kennedy grabbed his tie on the way down. So was that was he ever interviewed uh, to talk about some of these specifics of some issues that were going on with the inconsistencies and in the whole Sirhan just being the one killer? Well, the, yeah, but the, but the problem is, is that with the incompetence of the LAPD, specifically Dwayne Wolfer, these kind of things weren't uh, readily apparent. Um, Whoa, it was, well, incompetence. Let's talk about like collusion here. That's not really well, incompetence. Okay, fair enough. But giving them the benefit of the doubt, how's that? Because Why not would you give not, them the benefit of the doubt. Fuck. Because that. not everything, not everything that the L or the Dallas Police Department did could be chalked up to collusion. Sometimes it is just, oops, get police work, <laughs> or the unexpected nature of the event as well. It took everybody by, by surprise. So everyone's running around with their with their heads cut off, so, and everybody's making mistakes. Uh, but it's those patterns of mistakes, those those consistencies of mistakes, and with which you're making mistakes. What evidence are you making mistakes with? That that shows the the collusion, um, and how many people know about it. So, but with Robert Kennedy's case, it's it's no different. You, you um, but but to ask your answer your question, Thane, the story of Thane Eugene Caesar should be a book in and of itself. But you ask if he was questioned. Yes, of course he was questioned by the LAPD but not very critically because he wasn't a suspect. He was never a suspect in, in the, in the initial investigative um, time that, that we're talking about from the preparation of the trial of Sirhan Sirhan, because we caught the guy, the guy is shit nuts. Uh, he's, he's babbling. He's incoherent. And I'm not talking about because of his thick Palestinian accent. I'm just. I'm stuff. Yeah. Right. So, um, so there's no reason for us to look any further. His gun wasn't wasn't uh, confiscated and tested. Um, and then by the time people did realize that, hey, we have witnesses based on, on the reports of seeing a second gunman or seeing a second gun, because he did at least admit that he had his gun out, but he says he never fired. it. So you've got the existence of another gun in the pantry, at least one other gun in the pantry. I, Jack Merritt is the same way. Um, I don't believe he brandished his weapon, or at least he didn't say he did. Uh, that doesn't mean it wasn't possible. Um, but you also have the guy who brandished his weapon say, yes, I did. I took it out of my holster. But, of course, after the shooting, not, not during or before. Um, so once once um, independent investigators like Ted Schrack, um, Allard Lowenstein caught up with um, Thane Eugene Caesar, uh, do you still have the gun? No, I sold it. So then they tracked down the guy he sold it to, and the receipt I think was right, September of 1968. 
no, nope, I'm I'm wrong about that. Forgive me. He claimed that it was no, now now I can't remember. I can't remember about the timing of of him selling it in September '68 when he testified in '69 that he'd sold it prior to the assassination. I think that was it. So he sold so, it prior to the assassination. Yes, he claimed that he sold it prior to the invest to the to the assassination, but the receipt from the guy that he sold it to a gentleman by the name of Yoder. And now his first name escapes me, uh, produced a receipt that was September of 1968 as, as when they, when he sold, when Thane Eugene Caesar sold his gun, which was clearly after the assassination, not before. Um, so now he is, I believe he's in the Philippines. Thane Eugene Caesar has been in the Philippines. He, he fled the country because of him constantly being hounded by everybody saying, you know, did you really kill Robert Kennedy? And um, <clears throat> damn, why can't he stick it out like Ruth Payne does? Absolutely. If if Ruth Payne can can handle it, then he could as well. Um, or any of the JFK witnesses actually that were hounded. Were there a lot of RFK witnesses? Like when it comes to um people like had suspicious deaths or things of that sort, or is it just because it was a smaller field? There wasn't that many to that suspiciousness. No, smaller field, and and possibly um. Uh, like you said, less suspicious. Uh, although I, I will have to say that I'm I'm kind of struck by you talk about such a small amount of people actually in the pantry and that could be claimed as witnesses. But then again, even with JFK's assassination and my database of eyewitnesses, I put people there that heard the shots but didn't see the shots. And even people there who didn't see or hear the shots because they were physically there, like like you know, in one of the press buses or an enclosed space and couldn't hear it, but you were there and you were, you know, uh, questioned and so forth and so on. Um, I'm surprised by the suicides of a couple of, of campaign workers for Robert Kennedy, uh, young professionals for Kennedy, uh, and, and they both were actresses or at least, you know, wannabe actresses who before 1970, Yes, one was 1969, one was 70. They committed suicide. I just, I just found that odd. That I, I guess you know, the acting business isn't as as lucrative, and certainly wasn't back in the 1960s as you know as it is today. But anyway, um, now, so yeah, a, a lot of similarities between the JFK and RFK case as far as the investigation was concerned, and of course, like I said, the magic bullet, um, trying to fit. Um, evidence into a preconceived notion. The preconceived notion, of course, being is that Sirhan Sirhan was the only one firing a weapon. So the existence of more than eight bullets necessitates a second gunman, regardless of who that is, regardless of what their motive was. It necessitates that and then completely destroys not only the summary report of the LAPD, but also all of its investigative files. That, I mean, that, and that's why I think officials whether it's local, state, or federal, hold so tightly to, to their work because it only takes one straw to bring the entire house down. And so it's not just that you got this wrong, it's that because of your incompetence, because of your collusion, because of whatever reason, everything is marred. All of your work is marred by this one mistake. And of course, the one mistake is having a preconceived notion and trying to fit all of the evidence into it when it simply doesn't happen. D 
did Sirhan Sirhan shoot and wound those five people? Yes, he did. Uh, is 60 years enough for him to serve for shooting all those people? Because you've got to remember that, that he's had 17 parole hearings. Paul Schrade showed up at his parole hearings. He was in tears when he begged the judge to let him out. I've forgiven him for shooting me, and I know that he didn't shoot one of my best friends, Robert, Robert Kennedy. Um, so so um, he, much like Oswald and his weapon, Sirhan Sirhan and his weapon could not have fired any of the shots into Robert Kennedy. So it's not, it's, it's, this is not a point of whether or not he was in the pantry or he had a gun that he was told to buy, right? And, and fired like the JFK case. You know, the mystery is all about was Oswald there? Was he in the window? Was he in the second floor? You know, did he have his gun or did somebody steal it from, from Ruth Payne's garage and, and plant it there where he worked so that he could be, you know, um, he could be framed for it. This was, Saran was there, he fired a weapon, and that, that has made it very difficult over the years to get people to, to really examine this case, the flaws, the deficiencies, and of course, the impossibility, the physical impossibility that was established by an impeccable medical legal autopsy that the gun was one to two inches from Kennedy's body, and that they were steep upward angles. Both of those points preclude the physical possibility of Sirhan Sirhan firing any of the bullets that struck Robert Kennedy's body. If you got a pen and paper handy, this might be good to write down the questions I'm about to rattle off like a... Fair enough. All right, so my first one is, this is just a little aside about the JFK stuff. So I was digging through DVD archives trying to figure out, because there's always this theory out there, and it's not really a theory, it's fact kind of uh, proven by these documents, I think, which is um, that Dallas police did not care about Kennedy, um, JFK. They just did, none of the cops cared. They were only there to try and figure out who killed Tippett. Um, so looking, trying to figure out the movie scenario of how Oswald ends up in a movie theater, and I find that the, the testimony of the person who ran the ticket booth who said that she never sold a ticket, um, she had been told by someone that I think this is the guy that the cops are looking for because this guy ducked into a theater when all these cop cars came by. And the transcript shows the phone call conversation that was on there, and she said, I think this is the guy you're looking for who killed JFK. And the cop on the other end said, no, we're looking for a person that killed a police officer. So it just shows that they weren't there to get him on JFK. They were there to get him on the whole um, Tippett murder thing, which is what he was being charged for. He was never being charged for the JFK stuff. I just thought it was interesting coming across those DPD documents and seeing that. The other thing is if you don't think that Sirhan was the only shooter, the MK Ultra aspect that comes with that. What are you assuming that there was? I've heard the polka dot dress might have been a trigger. I know people skepticizing what the trigger is. You can do that if you want. I'm just more kind of focused on i mk ultra is my ballpark i've talked to stephen kinzer who wrote poisoner in chief and i've done a lot of work on the mk ultra stuff especially when it comes to joy on west and jack well, i would i would i would defer all comments to him okay like you said he's the expert and and that's not really my forte although um it is it's possible that absolutely okay absolutely very compelling and again I, I, and i just want to make this point one more time because i think it's a it's an incredibly important point as a matter of fact i've i've just said this recently to somebody to to say that okay scratch that 
the idea that a government would collude, plan, collude, and execute a plan to assassinate their head of state because they earnestly felt that he was a threat to their very existence is not unprecedented and it's not unheard of. A lot of people think that because we're talking about the United States and because we're talking about republic and democracy and checks and balances and all those lovely fluff words that 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 lull us into this false sense of security that even somebody who's highly democratic, highly patriotic couldn't be treasonous. It's a it it, it is not you look at the history of the world. You look at at political assassinations of heads of states from time immemorial. And it is not unprecedented and it is not unheard of simply because we're the United States doesn't doesn't make us immune to that. So the idea that a bunch of very powerful men who were incredibly in their own minds patriotic saw Kennedy as sympathetic to communism, which was at that point our number one enemy to our way of life, not just geopolitical, but culturally our way of life, our very existence was in danger because of communism. So here is this young, inexperienced president who can't be bought, who learned a very early lesson in his uh, administration that the military and military advisors are not to be um, trusted. So he creates this band of his own elite experts, his brother, Lawrence O'Donnell, or Kenny O'Donnell, um, and puts more stock into what they say instead of these career military industrial complex figures. Then when he blames the CIA privately for the Bay of Pigs fiasco, which was very embarrassing to his uh, administration, yet he didn't have a whole lot of control over, he fires the top two executives from the CIA. One of whom then ends up on the very panel who was investigating his assassination. Which is it interesting because Alan Dulles wrote Kennedy's speeches during his debates with Nixon. So you're wondering why Alan Dulles was supporting a Democrat like Kennedy and not voting for a Republican. And I bring up this idea, which no one likes to talk about because everyone's like, oh, how dare you defend Richard Nixon? I'm like, I'm not defending Richard Nixon. I don't think he should have stayed as president. But to say that the only person in that times that was doing anything fucking bad was Richard Nixon is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And the fact that he's synonymous with the Watergate and all that and everyone just knows the name Nixon. But that was a watershed moment. It was important because uh, the public, this was the first time the public stopped believing. Christ, Hoover was an address and also invading the Black Panther Party we could talk about too. But so my my whole thing is, um, damn, I forgot where I was going with it too. Well, Amy, uh, MK Ultra, and you were asking about um, – yeah. No. So uh, Kennedy, uh, Alan Dulles wrote Kennedy's speeches for him against Richard Nixon. I think it was because he knew that he couldn't push over Richard Nixon like he could do with Kennedy. Kennedy signed on to have Hoover appointed Hoover and appointed Dulles, only realizing I think at this point he wasn't too familiar with how deep they were entwined in the whole military industrial complex idea. Who, 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 wait, wait, wait. Who appointed them? Well, I mean, he had 
supporters of Hoover and Alan Dulles close by his side. Oh, absolutely. Like yeah. So oh, absolutely. When, when I bring up that point, I think he figured it out later how bad they were. But I also think it was a good tactic on Kennedy because he realized these guys have been in charge of these agencies for so long that he owns the respect of those agencies. I mean, you can look at plenty of documents with J. Edgar Hoover and the number of people that did not like it when you talk bad about Hoover because they had so much respect for him or they feared him. So you get Both. the main bosses of the guys who <laughs> developed it. Balance. Yeah. You get the main bosses of the guy who defended or who kind of built up these agencies on your side then the rest of the team will follow now when firing alan dulles and look i don't think it's crazy i think when you look at the idea of the illusion what i would call the illusionist in my opinion the illusion of democracy illusion of freedom the illusion of free speech i think it's to a point but if you start examining things from where i examine it from a deep state perspective look at these agencies as things that are trying to protect their reputation william colby's well, a good example wait wait sorry not just their reputation because that that smacks of of hoover and his paranoia and <clears throat> the the most damaging thing you could ever do as an FBI agent, no matter where on the on the uh, hierarchy you you sit, it's embarrassment to the bureau. Yeah, we're talking in the Kennedy administration. We're talking its very existence. So these institutions, these sacred institutions, that were basically formed without any oversight, and continue to because it helped win a war, it helped stem communism, blah 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 blah. Yes, so the trust is in the institutions and the men who are running them given free reign but their main concern is their very existence yeah and if you have somebody like kennedy who's coming coming through and even if even if he said it in jest even if he was joking about smashing the cia to pieces and scattering it to the wind you don't do that you do not uh yeah, i agree I agree. I was just I was just getting to the point of where we can look at the evidence basis when we look at the deaths of William Colby that have been suspicious because of what he did with Watergate and the number of things he was going on with the church committee, exposing a heart attack gun and not exposing too many secrets. That's why they had two guys beside him to make sure that we didn't – in their terms, they said – Make sure he doesn't give away too much of the family jewels aspects, which comes to people that were overseas in other countries that could be at risk, which I agree with. But I don't think that's what they were entirely doing it 100 percent for. They never published the CIA's budget, which was an issue of how much money they're making on their black budgets, whatever they're talking about. Death of Dag Hammarskjöld, another one that the UN decided to look into because that was awfully suspicious. And then also Hale Boggs after he called out Hoover in 71 and dies in 72 a couple of months later. So you get a real interest when you start looking at these agencies is what they're going to do to like i said protect their reputation but also in the kennedy thing protect that their their even existence you start becoming a threat to national security we know plenty of people that go overseas that fight for this country then they do one thing that might have disobeyed an order and they get labeled a terrorist or they get labeled a traitor and they get locked up for however many years so it's not so crazy and conspiratorial to think that i just think you have to point people to the other evidence that we have that shows support for those conclusions and if you're looking at the idea of america it's a lot bigger than just a person's life sadly absolutely to say that, that's how the example you've got you've got these these career military industrial complex other um intelligence institutions <clears throat> who are convinced that no man is worth the future of our country and if they have convinced themselves not only that political assassination is one of those <clears throat> tools that can be used at their discretion but also that this man represents a dire threat to our very existence and our very way of life that's how that's how well extreme they are in 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 their philosophy so the idea that they dispassionately say or felt that kennedy was that kind of threat and had to be eliminated 
is not beyond the realm of possibility or even likelihood. So Robert Kennedy, the same way, excuse me, because I do believe that even though there was a quiet, I guess, um, coming to terms with where he was, what had happened, uh, that transformed him, um, and evolved his, uh, Robert Kennedy's thinking and approach to things as a politician, as a human being, um, made him more humane, less ruthless. Had he made it to the White House, you absolutely, he would have tracked down anybody who was responsible for his brother's death and, and brought them to Swift and, and, um, <laughs> justice. This is a tough question only because I don't like this guy so much, but what are your thoughts on Vincent Bigelosi and why does he have a different take on the RFK assassination compared to what he wrote about the JFK assassination? That is an excellent question, and I don't know um, to the extent of which anyone had asked him that when he was still alive. Um, for your viewers, uh, Vincent Bugliosi, uh was responsible for a tome of epic proportions, historical epic proportions in um, spending, what, 25, 30 years uh, um, writing a thousand-plus page book, thousand-plus page book on the Kennedy assassination, and was, was a staunch critic of the critics of the Warren Commission. <clears throat> and, it, and it's sad that, that such a good uh, prosecutor, a good attorney as Vincent Bugliosi, would have spent all, the, all of that time, all of that effort into basically a um, indefensible arguments. Careful with the words good. I mean, good in the sense that he got his mission accomplished, but I don't agree with how he did handle the Manson trial at all. No. Okay. Fair enough. But, but, but as, but from a legal standpoint, from, from, from that aspect as, as, as an attorney, as a prosecutor, he was very good at what he did. Um, yes. So he was instrumental in a reinvestigation of Robert Kennedy's assassination, the release of the LAPD summary report and files um, and his own investigative work in interviewing people, having tests conducted, so forth and so on. It is antithetical to his, his, his um, stance on the JFK assassination. I don't know why. Uh, I haven't read enough interviews with him or seen enough interviews with him where he would have been in a position to answer that question. Um, if you can see, if you can see um, collusion and um, corruption in the RFK case, why can't you see it in the JFK case? Why isn't that more obvious? And to a lot of people, it is more obvious than the JFK case. I think deal is what I think. Well, I, it, you know, I, at this point, like I said, anything is possible, uh, what his personal or professional motivations were. Um, you can say the same thing about Arlen Specter. And um, prior to his, his experience with the Warren Commission, uh, again, a promising young attorney who, who basically could have, have, have written his own ticket, instead wrote his ticket on the coattails of the work that he, the work that he did for the Warren Commission. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, that's, that it's, it's troubling. Uh, it's troubling that, that he did not spend as much time on the JFK or on the RFK case that he did on the JFK case. Who knows where we would be at this point if he had, if he had that, written his thousand page tome on RFK's assassination. Does Sirhan not remember anything? He doesn't. So when we're talking about, uh, and, and again, that could be an entire book of, of, 
in and of itself, not just the trial itself in 69, but also all of his, his parole hearings. And the fact that in 2021, the California Parole Board um, recommended his release and Governor Newsom rescinded that. Why is Newsom on the basis, of course, of the Kennedy family. And when you say the Kennedy family, there is not one spokesperson. Ethel Kennedy has been a, an extremely, extremely private person. No interviews, no, te- you know. As far as I can tell that RFK Jr. is like the only one that's really a dissenting view about the CIA so, and the government yeah. killing the family. Well, yeah, yes, to the extent. But Kathleen Kennedy Townsend also uh, has has said that, that her father's um, death should be reinvented. There's a lot of them. So I'm like, why the hell is no one else speaking out? Right. Uh, and this, and again, much like like um, I believe it was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. the third, who who visited um, James Earl Ray in prison as he was dying of liver failure, um, which was the eeriest thing I've ever seen because he looked so much like his father. Um, he met with him. Robert Kennedy did, this, did the same thing, and after having met these these alleged assassins of their very own fathers, said, "No, he didn't do it. Let him out." And and how and how that simply being ignored uh, is is beyond me. Uh, but you would think that that the Kennedy family still possessing a lot of power behind their name, certainly the reputation. Um, why they couldn't have made that happen, I guess, speaks to those in a position to control such levers of investigative. Um, you know, inquiry um, have just ignored him. I got to interview the Terminator. He's got to know he married into that family. Absolutely, Arnold. Come on. I just I know at a barbecue someone had to slip something. They know they know what's going on over there. Um, I wanted to talk to you about a topic I think we both have an interest in, which is the counterculture movement, um, the underground press, and all those types of things. Around this time, did anybody any underground press newspapers that you know of might have covered? Some of these, I know some covered the MLK stuff. I'm sure some probably covered the JFK stuff. What about the RFK one? Did there just get any steam on the RFK assassination or anybody rising up against that as well, too? I mean, I know this is like in the parts of the Vietnam War and things that are going on. So I'm just curious if anybody was writing about what was going on with the RFK assassination or at least any media reporting that was actually doing their job of questioning what the hell was going on. You know, again, it's it's because of the... Uh, the the apparent immediacy of the existence of 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 Sirhan Sirhan in the pantry, having emptied his revolver, <clears throat> that I think j- just kept people on that line of yeah he must have done it, you know because he was tried he did uh, reportedly confess he was found guilty, but the 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 fact of the matter is is that Sirhan Sirhan's trial wasn't about whether or not he had done it. It was about, are we going to kill him because of it, or are we just going to put him in jail for the rest of his life? So it was a sentencing, and 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 at that point, point it was the most expensive um, trial in the history of our country at that point. And so to go to those lengths just, just to adjudicate whether or not he was going to get the death penalty or life in prison, wow, what a waste of resources. But um, I am not... I have not done a comprehensive study of the media um, response to the RFK assassination. And I think, again, it goes back to one of the reasons why is because there wasn't an immediate 
release of a report that could have been scrutinized. Um, the only thing that was available was uh, Robert Houghton, who was the chief, uh, not chief of police, um, or he was at the time. He wrote a book called Special Unit Senator, which was the which was the case name of the LAPD, LAPD gave to Robert Kennedy's assassination investigation. So it was sus, Special Unit Senator. Um, that means suspicious in modern day language. There you go. And his book then served as really the only clue as to what they found, what they concluded, because uh, it was just a summary of, of their investigation and, and what their final conclusions were. But, but no official report, no investigative files, not even the FBI and its Kensalt files were released at that point. So there was very little that could be picked apart. Um, Do we have all the files on the RFK stuff? Yes. Okay. I mean, uh, other than the stuff that's been destroyed and missing. Well, but... I mean, did, uh, Biden just announced that they're not going to release any more JFK files, and they don't have to do it anymore. So I guess that acts over with. I knew that was going to happen. I was just wondering, like, I'm surprised they didn't just say it from the beginning. I... Well, I, well, again, I, I wouldn't put much stock in any of the presidents that have that have continued to listen to their intelligence advisors or or those. Um, representatives from intelligence agencies that have to make a plea to each of the presidents for the reasons why we still want to uh, not disclose uh, this information. So it's, it, you can say that all of the presidents, uh, Biden, Trump, Obama, Bush, you know, that they were all doing everyone's bidding. I don't know how compelling their arguments were. I don't know what kind of advisors they have saying, look, if the intelligence chief tell you this, don't go against it. I don't care what the what the public sentiment is, um, and what their rationalization for it is. I don't know because this is all in, you know behind closed doors. Yeah, and... but can you imagine being there when this all happened, and then you wait sixty years and still waiting? The people that died, the people that were just hoping that this would be the next day, the next release, everything. This would be the answer to that they finally get, and then the time comes and nobody fucking gives you anything, and now we're past that time. I would be so pissed. Absolutely. And, and we all are, you know, outraged by that, uh, by the by the decisions of of not only the intelligence agencies, but also um, get Bill back in there. Bill will do some do some work for you. Well, no, actually, it was Bill Hicks, the wonderful comedian of the late 80s. And what, the six floor window joke? No, um, there's no way, man. I can't even see the fucking road. <laughs> Bill Hicks loved talking about the Kennedy assassination and the Warren Commission, but his joke was, "You got you see any hope in Clinton? There's no fucking hope in Clinton. Here, here's what here's what happened. Okay, he gets in office, he goes into this meeting, this boardroom, and all around are the big industrious, you know, industrial fucks of the world around this table, and Bill smoking Clinton, a big cigar. There, yeah, smoking on cigars, and a screen comes down." And film rolls, and it's a it's a it's a view of the Kennedy assassination that you've never seen before. Any questions? <clears throat> and you know, the screen goes up, and the guy, yeah. Any questions? <laughs> Just what my agenda is, because so so that and that and that has a, has a, a a ring of truth to it. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't put a lot of whole whole lot of hope in Clinton. I think that there were there were very good attempts by researchers and private individuals to try to at least get the case to go forward. One of the best ones was um, a researcher, I don't know, I, I can't remember who it was. So I just say researcher just as a generic term. Somebody got 
a Dallas County judge to hear arguments about exhuming President Kennedy's body. And it was in Dallas County, he filed in Dallas County because, because of the reference to, um, or in deference to the fact that in 63, it was not a federal crime to kill the president. So all of the jurisdiction of the JFK case fell within Dallas County. So if, if something happened in Dallas County, even though it was the president of the United States, the law recognized him as John Doe. Yeah. And, and, and the judge considered it, of course he threw it out, but the fact that he considered it. And so that was, that was in the Clinton administration. So during the Clinton administration. These, so, okay. These questions are going to be for my own personal preference. Um, mostly, do you think I would be like a what, fourth generation researcher? You think I'm a researcher? Would you consider me a researcher? That's the question. No, se second generation. Because in a generation. generation, 20 years. I thought, well, let's say we're on the third generation right now. Third, third, yeah. Yeah. Third generation researcher, sure. Because talking with a lot of people on the assassination, one that really I think has a lot of weight to it, at least when it comes to the public's mind of things besides everyone. First of all, someone rolls their – I have so many friends that go, you're into conspiracy talk. I'm like, what conspiracy are we talking about here? And like the JFK assassination is like, I'll fucking clock you out right now. I'll tell you that much. I've been to way too much shit to deal with that. I've done the interviews on it too, but then it's trying to get people past that point. But when I had an academic on here who studies covert action – and he studies the JFK assassination. He specifically focuses into Morales. Um, as like a lot of people think that he had some involvement in the assassination. Um, he mentions to me, there's not a question if there is a conspiracy in the Kennedy assassination. The question is, is that there's evidence to show you that there's conspiracy when it comes to a cover-up. Now, what was that cover-up intended for? And that's the real question you try and tell people with. If you just stick with the baseline of an investigation and see how shitty it was done, so many things that didn't add up, so many ends that were never tied off or were, I guess, tied off or cut off, but they were never fully investigated into, you start looking at, okay, there's things you can question here and you get people to level up conspiracy. I'm finding that it's a lot easier to try and dive through the section of the counterculture movement and to show you what was going on with these activist organizations, which leads me to the question of how you got interested into the counterculture movement. Was that from your research with the Fred Hampton assassination and other things, or did um do you have did you come across that before even looking at the Fred Hampton stuff? Well, when when you you see isolated incidents like um. Well, there weren't isolated incidents, but specific incidents uh, like political assassinations, you have to you have to um, view it within the context of the time that it happens. So the 1960s being very tumultuous, being very uh, radical and revolutionary um, and all of these uh, cultural groups, and they're called counterculture because it was against the status quo. So anything against the status quo technically could be counterculture. The fact that middle class America at that point were still very uncomfortable with drug use. Uh, I'm sorry, non-prescription drug use, uh, because as George, George Carlin pointed out many times, um, drugs was the biggest uh, word on the sign at your pharmacy, you know, cosmetics, sundries, drugs, um, amphetamines, you know, the, the housewives, you know, whether it's sleeping pills, amphetamines, you know, but we're talking about the the slick exotic stuff that the young kids were using lsd uh, baby well but even marijuana even very marijuana was looked down upon as you know well it leads to heroin right it leads to everything it leads to you know so so anything that that was against the status quo or against the middle class or the middle class didn't understand they you know it, they said it was counterculture yeah um but so so all of this happens that is 
um, all of these political assassinations and upheavals uh, and investigations happen within the existence of that counterculture and only fed the fodder for them uh, to, to show them how far the um, government had gone uh, or was willing to go, um, even with these beloved characters, characters, these beloved historical figures. Um, so, so the counterculture and its reporting on it, its attitude towards it, um, and and using that to try to affect change, uh, yeah, is of interest to me. What are your What are your thoughts on the students for democratic society, and then also the weather underground? Like, I have complicated thoughts on the weather underground because I think that I understand the repression aspect of trying to make a statement and like blowing up a toilet. I don't agree is right because someone could get injured even if they warn people. But then you get to the point where like some of the groups actually split off on a different coast. Exactly, and, some of that and, that, and that's and that's what you have to be, be really careful of with SDS. Um, it being an out uh, outlier for. Um, uh, from a, a, a labor group, you know, so it started in, in um, the mid twenties as a labor group and then just evolved from that. And then of course, as the emergence of the fifties and sixties happened, then it, it, it was taken over by the, the younger generation, um, a new mandate, new name, new, new uh, course of action, uh, new set of priorities. Um, but, SDS was like many of the other radical organizations in the 1960s that was uh, unfortunately misunderstood, vastly misunderstood by the very people who were investigating them on a daily basis and trying to disrupt their their um, disruptive disrupt, disruptive ways um, and and challenges to the status status quo. Um, But they, like a lot of other organizations, uh, fell victim to um, the divergence within their own organization uh, of views and which way it should go and who should be um, in a coalition with us, who should we cooperate with, who shouldn't we. I mean, there was a split in the Black Panther Party from the Eldridge Cleaver faction to the uh, Huey Newton faction. And that happened very quickly. Um, SDS is the same thing. Um, when some people in the organization felt that words, demonstration, it was too slow, it was too laborious, it wasn't happening fast enough. So we want action, we want action. The government isn't gonna do anything unless we really take it to them. And of course, um, by the time we got to the weather underground or the weathermen, um, it was more of a violent approach, um, which nobody was really advocating. And, and in fact, Fred Hampton, made it a point to call out the leadership of uh, Bernadine Dorn and, and Mark Rudd uh, for being, well, what he called custeristic. That is, you're setting up scenarios that the police didn't even need or reason to for the, in the first place for them to go in and um, fight your violence with even more violence. So there are going to be unintended uh, victims of your very, um, your methods of, of getting the attention of the authorities. Well, welcome, yeah, you got it now. And they're gonna be coming in with tanks and with guns, you know, a lot bigger guns than you have. So, um, you know, stop putting all of us at risk for all, you know, all the work that we're doing to try to make these, these changes in the community so we can really obtain political power, which will then in fact change the structure. Uh, you just wanna blow it up. And that's very and it's irresponsible and it's dangerous and um 
groups that are thought to be aligned with you will then um, reap the, the consequences of that. So uh, Fred Hampton was very harsh in, in their approach to, um, well, their violent, their violent approach to change. But it was, but the fact that, that SDS splintered off into uh, the revolutionary, revolutionary youth movement one and two, and then of course that split off into the Weathermen and SDS is still trying to hold shit together. You know, um, it's a fascinating history. And, and um, the real expert on that is Kirkpatrick Sale. Um, you have to get his book. It, it's, it's the end all be all of, of histories of SDS. And goes in, delves into that. Did Fred Hampton's criticisms derive? I mean, did it split the Black Panther Party from some of the communications with the Weather Underground? I know for a brief time they were kind of help, like communicating or talking with each other, but it seemed like the Black Panther Party ended up trailing off just because they didn't like the actions that some of the Weather Underground. Well, well unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, um, the the consequence of of Fred Hampton uh, and where he was at his life at the time, uh, because this confrontation that we're talking about happened during the Bring the War Home. Um, uh, a series of of protests um, in uh, what, October eighth through the twelfth, nineteen sixty nine. Um, Fred Hampton had just gotten out of prison. He was dealing with a fractured uh, a, a fractured um, Illinois chapter Black Panther Party, uh, where uh, the government um, uh, their ghetto informant program, COINTELPRO, having its effect, making everybody suspicious of everybody else as being an informant. Um, he was trying to get control back of, of, of his party. Um, he was doing a lot of touring, a, a lot of uh, speaking engagements. Um, he had very little time for that. And I think that's why he was exasperated. You know, all the shit he had to worry about. Now he's got to, you know, worry about Mark Rudd blowing up a, a statue in Grant Park. Um, Unfortunately, Fred didn't live long enough for 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 there to be a resolve between um, SDS, its factions, and the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party had al already enjoyed uh, an alliance with SDS. SDS was not part of the Rainbow Coalition, Fred Hammond's Rainbow Coalition, but they had a working relationship, is what Fred had Fred said. Um, and so they would sponsor BPP rallies, and then of course BPP would sponsor their rallies, and and so forth and so on. Uh, but then when that split happened, it was an it was an opportunity for Fred to reassess where that group is going and who speaks for who, who's representing um, what used to be SDS um, or what they knew SDS was prior to this. Um, and I just I, unfortunately Fred, uh, you know, was dead two months later. So so a resolution of that relationship didn't happen. Um, I don't know. I can, I can surmise that much like Fred Hampton was successful in, in his rainbow coalition and the alliances that the black Panther party had with dozens of other uh, organizations uh, all competing for whether it's, it's press coverage or effectiveness or recognition for that effectiveness, um, he was able to forge working relationships with very disparate groups. 
And he gained a lot of respect and earned a lot of respect from these people. And I think a lot of people uh, were ready to take his lead, listen to his advice. Um, a lot of people modeled some of the programs that, that the Black Panther Party came up with in their own organizations. Um, so I think Fred would have been a formidable opponent for a, fracted, uh, a, a fractured um, SDS group like the Weathermen, I think, and, and could have been successful in calming Mark Rudd down or Bernadine Dorn um, and getting them to see a, a different tact and a different approach to the problem. Um, but he just didn't have that opportunity. Did you have a favorite um, underground press magazine or any of them? Um, well, the Liberation News Service was an excellent news service, um, uh, which which fed a lot of the underground press uh, newspapers and magazines. Um, but I think that that there there were just so many of them. Um, Specifically in Chicago, it was the Chicago Seed, yeah. and and you just told me that you interviewed uh, Abe Peck, who was who was uh, a reporter for the Chicago Seed, did a wonderful interview with Fred Hampton when he got out of prison, and I still refer to that that interview today. Um, so yeah, the Chicago Seed would probably be. Uh, I was just there. look. I was just, that was more of a personal. Berkeley, the Ber Berkeley Barb. Uh, and uh, the Dragon Seed, which is, I think, is a pretty dope ass name. Absolutely. So, I was just very interested, and that was more of a personal question for me, just because um, I don't know. I'm looking through the number of magazines and seeing if there's anybody alive that participated in any of those, just to get to, the I, designs on them are, are fucking amazing. I mean, yes, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. This is this was when it was it was part of the art that that, that publication news and and the disseminating of information was in itself an art. So they they took great pride in the masthead and um, uh, well the masthead was on the inside but but the um, and I can't remember what it is then on the front page but their logo their layout uh, the font uh, all of these things in fact my <laughs> um, my grandmother uh, Betty Lewis uh, owned Four Corners Press in the Southfield News. Uh, she was the first per first woman in Michigan to own her own newspaper, one of the first in the country to own her own, her own newspaper. Uh, and I have since, and she she died in 1971. Um, I've since learned that she not only printed the Fifth Estate here from Michigan, uh, which was an underground magazine or newspaper here in Michigan, here in Michigan. Um, but she also served as one of their advisors. She would she would edit, she would proofread, she would you know they would bounce off ideas off of her. Now my grandmother was a staunch conservative. She was a, she was a Republican, but she was absolutely a warrior for the First Amendment. So where all other printing presses refused to publish the Fifth Estate. And the official, the the fifth estate at that point is still trying to get you know, um, their own office, their own printing press. You know, it was very expensive back then. Um, here is this this conservative, you know, mother of four out of uh, out of of tiny sleepy village in Franklin who says, I might not agree with what they say, certainly don't like the language that they use, but as long as their argument is sound, and and reasoned they should have every opportunity to have their newspaper printed. So she did it herself. 
Damn right. Uh, and, and I'm incredibly proud of that. And and um, but that goes back to how cool the names are, the artwork is, because this was all done by hand. This, you know, yeah. this was done by computers and the layout too. You should have heard Abe Pep going down with a couple of, like I think coin, I forgot what he said, uh, coin wise in his pocket to go burn up some of these magazines and get them copied and everything. To me, that's just fascinating as hell, man. I mean, you literally are carrying what could be is now, I mean, cultural history for that time period, especially in for, for Chicago, um, since he was part of the Chicago seed. So it's like, you know, I don't know. I find interest in that. I know a lot of people just want like the really cool bits and pieces, like the most interesting things about history. I'm like, that ah, man, it's all fascinating as hell to think because, about. Because they're because they're differing perspectives from different corners of the country. Baltimore had this, this was this was the voice of the people in a way that was not um that wasn't edited, uh, that wasn't um subservient to whatever sponsors they had, um, who could really bring lots of different kinds of news and editorials um to all corners of of the continental united states and and it was it was in its in itself part of the liberation movement of the 1960s so when we talk about black liberation women liberation gay liberation student the liberation, gay blades man the gay blades uh, and anti-war uh you know demonstrations Wait, one, have, have you ever heard about the rational observer rational observer Dale Brumfield was on my show, and he found out that the Rational Observer was a FBI-created underground press magazine that was loaded on college campuses. And all these people that he was interviewing started finding out later, like, "Wait, that was an FBI thing?" He was like, "Yeah, that's fucking nuts." Yeah. Oh no, uh, you know, uh, FBI agents posing as as counterculture students, <laughs> and yeah. You should have heard when I had Ron. Were little hippies. I had Ron Riddenhauer on the show. I don't know if you ever heard that name before, but he was he was we were Sounds talking familiar. we were talking about a lot of the counter press and everything like that. And then I mentioned, yeah, Oswald being part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee and did this. And he goes, he you was not a he, part of the he was he not was a part of the member. Yeah, he was like he was not a part of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And then as on air, he gets up, walks away, comes back with his little ID membership card of the Fair Play for Cuba committee. And I'm like, holy fuck, you are a part of the. Uh, thing what it was just interesting like interviewing all these counterculture guys because you're hearing a a different experience and surprisingly they all dabble in subjects that are involved in the kennedy subject they might not know all about the kennedy stuff but they know bits and pieces to tell you what's right and wrong and the connection the connective tissue absolutely well it's just like um it's what I don't like about Bugelosi when I'm talking about like the Manson stuff. They called it the Manson murders. That's a great way to get cultural history or history just to remember Manson. Whenever they think of Manson, they think Manson murders, even though he didn't kill anybody. I'm like, you guys use name techniques, and it's much like when you're looking at a lot of these government documents and stuff. You just have to analyze it through legal speak. I think too many people are looking at it as like a person giving them the answers. I go, no, just analyze it. Like my theory right now, and it's like I said, it's just a theory. It's about the JFK assassination. They said that there was no Secret Service member that was on that knoll, but everyone says that there was a Who guy said up that? there. Well, the Secret Service said that. So there's – a guy up there. No, no, the Secret Service said there was nobody stationed up there. Okay. But so my th my thing was I was looking through some CIA documents and I came across a CIA document and on their CIA documents they talked about how they can offer members of the CIA to the Secret Service in times to do make sure that the Secret Service can fulfill their duties. And I go, they're not lying to you when they say there wasn't a CIA a Secret Service guy stationed up there. If they just said it was a CIA guy, that was that's not the question you asked though. And in court that would never come out. But it can be seen as like, hey, that's manipulative language. It's like, well, that's fucking legal speak. But it's not. But that's how they get away with it that's, that's my how, theory don't steal it it's mine that that's how they <laughs> that's how they perpetuate it yeah that's how they keep and, doing their bullshit 
Absolutely. And this is one of the things, one of the experiences that I've had, what you talk about um, bureau ease, that is the FBI's language. They are very exact in their language because when people want something from them, they don't know what that language is. They don't know how or what to ask for. And I'm not just talking about FOIA, although that, that is pertinent in my case, but I'm talking about just other law enforcement agencies that want information from the FBI. They're very guarded in what they give. So they make a summary of what they actually have so they can disseminate it. And they, and they say it explicitly on their own documents that this is to be disseminated. Everything else is not to be disseminated. So being very exact um, as far as what kind of document it is, what kind of information you're seeking, and that that allows them to manipulate the very information that they share. And like I said, that that extends to FOIA as well. Mm. Um, and I don't want to get too lengthy about it, but but a good example of that is J.L. Brown, who is a self-proclaimed uh, investigative journalist <clears throat> who's online, uh, has a blog. He recently uh, filed a Freedom of Information Act request for William O'Neill's file, William O'Neill being one of the most prominent of the FBI informants that infiltrated the Black Panther Party. His claim to fame uh, that people attribute to him is that he led directly to the assassination of Fred Hampton through his um, the information he provided to his handler, uh, Roy Mitchell. But anyway, he, uh, J.L. Brown got, um, uh, did a GoFundMe for all of his readers and viewers uh, to raise the money to get uh, William O'Neill's file. But he also posted all of the correspondence he had with the FBI, including the original FOIA. What he asked for was, was William O'Neill's file. William O'Neill has no less than two files. I think he has three. One is his main investigative file, which is a 157 file. And the other one is his informant file. So when the FBI sees that, the request for his file, they will give him, J.L. Brown, the least um, incriminating one, right, or the, the least uh, informational one, the one that has been sanitized, the one that, that you know, th th that's a great example of that. But the FBI doesn't like me because I know, first of all, I know his 157 file number, and I know that that's separate and distinct from his informant file. So why don't you just give me the names of the files I'll request for them so they don't see your name pop up, they see mine. Well, there you go. But I think everyone, everyone should file a FOIA request because I've said this before. I will say it again because it's a very important point. They will not voluntarily release the documents that they have. And I don't mean that maliciously. I mean, they've got much, not better things. They've got- I want the John Lennon shit. Well, yeah, but John Weiner already, already know, you know, Took him 25 years to get the 900-page report. I found out they have a file on me. Of course, they got. They it's have, just it's just one page though. Yes, because you made good, a request. Good kid, good kid. No, because you made a request. Anyway, huh. um, yeah, everybody should because drugs, that's though. the only way these files are going to see the light of day is if the public actually requests them because they do not do it voluntarily. They do not have um, interns sitting in the FBI reading room just digitizing documents because the documents have to be processed and depending on how large the body of, of information is or the body of uh, the file is 
uh, that is a very long and drawn out process. If, you know, I made my request about Fred Hampton's file, I was told that it was uh, anywhere between 30 and 40,000 pages. That is a lot of processing because they've got to go page by page through it and redact all of the things that I'm not allowed to see. And they do a horrible job anyway. Anyway, so, but going back to, to, to using language that benefits the intelligence agency or the one disseminating information, that is incredibly important. Um, dictating the narrative. Since we're, I'm just been talking two hours, Craig. I don't want to take up too much of your Friday, but um, where can people find your blog spot? Let's talk about the blog. Let's talk about the blog. It's finally been created. We're going to have a site of all this info for well, your amazing work. But haven't haven't launched it yet. I'm still working on it. Dang. I bought the domain <laughs> name, so every, so the domain name is fredhampton.blog. Okay. Really easy to remember. Uh, once I launch that, the 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 first entry will be a uh critical analysis of uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. I want to make it clear that it is not a critique of the movie, although... Put your interview with Mr. Haas up there. Well, there you go. Or, or at least link to it. I'll make you artwork for it. I have Absolutely. a good app to make that. I make thumbnails for that look pretty good. I can make you some good stuff to put on your site to make it spread Hampton-y. Fair enough. But do I look like a guy who really does a good job on his you website? you got to make it look nice so the little kids click on it and they go, oh, and I learn. Absolutely. So um, I, I, I'm highly critical of the film, but not from a directorial standpoint or the acting or the cinematography or, well, okay. They made Fred look like a thug. It's bullshit. Well, but again, it goes back to why on Earth, I interviewed the director on here and I told him, I said, it fucking Chuck sucked, King? man. Yeah, I told him, I said, it sucked. Yeah. Okay, this is, this is the, you I had to. I know you're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> um. But the two brothers who who wrote it, uh, Keith and Kenny Blah Powers. I'll get it. I'll get it. You're telling me Roddy right Roddy Rowdy Piper did it. Lucas. Uh, they admitted that they oh ten it was ten years in the making. We did ten years of research. What in fact did you research? The the only books that you recommend or that that you mentioned by name was uh, a book about the Black Panther Party, the National Black Panther Party, which would only cursor cursorily uh, mention Fred Hampton and the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party, and the assassination of Fred Hampton by Jeffrey Haas, which is a lawyer's memoir. It is not an in-depth study of even their own civil case. But anyway, um, no, this is going to be an alternative for people who see the film if you want to know what actually happened. That that's the point of my first entry on that fredhampton.blog is to simply say it is to be the alternative. Enjoy the film if you like it, if it gets you interested in it. That's one of the positives of historical treatments of, of Hollywood films, uh, because we like history on the big screen. We don't like it in books because we don't like to read. But one of the positives or one of the pros of. Like. Patton or Tucker or the Buddy Holly story or Titanic or any of that uh, is, is that at least it gets you interested. And if you like the film and you're intrigued by at least the material that was presented, even though it was misleading and false in a lot of cases, go to my blog and you can see where history actually lived and that the what actually happened sometimes, most of the time, is even more thrilling and cinematic than what they put on the screen.
the shortcuts that they made to make it more appealing. Believe me, the truth is, is or what actually happened is always more compelling. When it you make the blog, we got to get you some social media sites, man. I know you don't do it, but you got to get a Twitter. You got to get a sub stack. You can easily just transfer your blog post onto there so we can get some more eyes on it. I'll be able to promote it as well, too. Um, I, I appreciate that if yeah. you know, I had the time to do it. Well, I, I, I mean, it doesn't take much, man. Can I, can I hire somebody to, to – I'll help you out if you really need manage, it. I don't even use my own social my media. Twitter. So I'm so bad at my own social media. Every time I go on there, it's always like the randomest crazy Twitter wars going on. I'm like, I don't have enough fucking time in the day to deal with an insane comment. Like on YouTube, when they get an insane comment, someone's like, I'm going to shit down your throat. I'm like, fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I got a fan. <laughs> but, but before before I let you go, um, I would be remiss if I didn't say, because um, we're talking about the RFK assassination uh, and the fact that it hasn't gotten nearly the same, uh, not publicity, but treatment by historians and journalists as, as the JFK assassination, uh, there still have been some wonderful works done uh, by, by uh, historians and professors and uh, even regular citizens. Uh, one is anything by Philip Melanson, uh, the late Dr. Philip Melanson. He's the one who established and uh, it's still in existence. I believe it's in Massachusetts, um, an archive of all of his work. Um, uh, Lisa Pease, who also did a lot of work in, in the JFK. She follows me on Twitter. What's that? She follows me on Twitter. Excellent. Um, the Mary, Mary Farrell.org. Mary Farrell was, was one of the, one of the giants of JFK researchers uh, from, from the very beginning, from 1963. Uh, her website is, is an absolute goldmine for all of the records of JFK, RFK, MLK, um, and even some other assorted uh, historical um, events and people. Uh, but that's, that's, that's the go-to place for the official records, um, which of course I uh, encourage anyone who, who is interested in the case, start with. Um, so, some of it is redacted and a lot of it's missing. It's frustrating. It's like the JFK case. You get into it, it's a, it's a very tangled web. Uh, you can't get out of it, but then again, you don't really want to. The more you read, the more you want to know. Uh, but but they have um, maryferrell.org has not only all the LAPD files, but also the Kensalt files. Um, so you can see for yourself uh, just what a mess of an of investigation it was and, and how and why the House Select Committee on Assassinations really dropped the ball in not pursuing a reinvestigation of Robert Kennedy's assassination and why it's still necessary to this day. And of course, uh, Shane O'Sullivan, uh, just me on Twitter too. Right. Uh, did a documentary, um, only, one of only two documentaries on the Robert Kennedy assassination. The other one was by Ted Chirac called The Second Gun. Uh, still to this day, is, is, it is an excellent documentary. The man knew how to make a film. Uh, but Shane, of, uh, Shane o, 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 O'Sullivan, um, now I can't remember what it's called. Is it I'll link it in. I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I apologize for that. I haven't seen it in a while. But uh, groundbreaking work. One of the things we didn't talk about was the actual uh, audio recording that was discovered and uh, processed in 2007 that clearly, distinctly, um, and supported by audio experts, uh, 13 shots. That's eight, eight of, Sher eight, eight of Sher Sirhan and five other guns, or five other shots from another gun. So... Uh, and these weren't ricochets or double shots. Um, 
as as the audio expert said, um, just compelling reasons for opening reopening the RFK case. If if nothing else, just that recording is justification. Um, but all the other bullets that were found in the pantry too uh, is justification. But yeah. Well, Craig, I appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. It's always Robbie, I, I, I am highly appreciative of all the time you've given me, and and thanks everyone for looking in. Yep. Thanks we'll talk for to you soon. Yeah, talk to you probably a little bit a little bit down the road. Um, but uh thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast and stay tuned for our next episode.